electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. We have several developing stories to watch this hour. The president raising his stimulus offer as House Speaker Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin are set to speak again this afternoon. We've got the latest on Washington's twists and turns. Plus, oil and energy stocks soaring this week. Is it a short-term rotation or is this a real crude comeback? And Disney drops theaters, Apple TV freebies, pandemic startups, and the cruise ship to nowhere. It's all ahead of us. But we do begin with the markets, and Dom Chu is watching that for us. Dom? Solidly in the green for this Friday. Looking to cap off a pretty nice week overall, but with one with some volatility. The Dow Industrials were up over 200 points at one point. You can see here up about 165 right now. There are some questions circulating around about whether or not there is enough support within Congress to actually pass this proposed legislation for COVID relief, even up to that $1.8 billion by President Trump. So the Dow Industrials up, but off their highs. The S&P still above that 3,400 mark here, up about almost 1%, and the Nasdaq outperforming as well. We'll get into why the Nasdaq is outperforming with some of these thematic elements that are coming out sector-wise and industry-wise, because there are groups that are hitting record highs today. Check out what's happening with home construction. So far this year, up 34%, retail's up about 19%, and 32% gains for the semiconductors. All of these guys here have hit record intraday levels for these particular ETFs. Is that a reflation? Is that a cyclical focus on the economy? That could be one of the reasons why. And for specifically for that semiconductors trade, check out what's happening intraday with Xilinx, up 13%, and AMD down about 4%, all on these reports from the Wall Street Journal that AMD could be getting close to making a $30 billion or so offer to buy Xilinx, a big, big merger in semiconductors, if it were to come to fruition. That's driving the entire industry higher. We've been watching Kelly, of course, those semiconductors as a possible leading indicator of the overall markets. We'll see if that plays out. I'll send things back over to you, Kel. Yep, and that would be a super exciting deal if it does come through. Dom, thank you very much. Now to the latest developments on the COVID relief front. So far today, we've heard from Senate Leader McConnell, Chief Economist Larry Kudlow, and the President himself. Now, the President weighed in again just a few moments ago, and Elon Moy is here with the very latest on where these talks stand right now. Elon? Well, Kelly, a person familiar with the negotiations tells me that the White House is raising its offer to $1.8 trillion for the next coronavirus relief package. Now, that is up from the $1.6 trillion it had previously put forward, but still short of the $2.2 trillion that Democrats say that they want. Still, both sides appear to be moving closer together, at least on a top-line number, with White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow saying that the president has signed off on a broad-based plan, and the president himself tweeting that COVID relief negotiations are moving along, go big. But in Kentucky today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell tried to tap the brakes on expectations of a speedy passage, even if there is a deal. I think the murkiness is a result of the proximity of the election and uh, everybody kind of trying to elbow for political advantage. I'd like to see us rise above that like we did back in March and April, but I think that's unlikely in the next three weeks. 
Kelly, the Treasury Secretary and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are set to speak again this afternoon. We'll keep you posted on what we find out. Back over to you. Still, Elon, it's ironic to me that after the president's uh, apparently saying go ahead with a $1.8 trillion stimulus package, which a few days ago seemed like it was out of the question, markets off its highs. I mean, maybe it's it's buy the rumor, sell the fact, but... It, you know, I'm, I'm just surprised. I'm just curious if there's anything you, you'd add on why, instead of seeing a, a big rally on what seemed like big news, it was kind of a shrug. Yeah, Kelly, you know the markets better than I do, but what I can say is that uh, murky is a very good way to describe the situation on Capitol Hill right now. The top line price tag is not the only issue in question. There are still details of the deal, the, the, of any deal that would have to be worked out. Um, so there is still um, some ways to go in these negotiations, but certainly movement on the top is, is a positive, uh, but this is not a done deal just yet. All right, and we're going to talk more about this uh, question right now. Elon, appreciate it. Thank you, Elon Moy in D.C. And while it seemed like a choppy ride for the markets this week with all of these twists and turns on COVID relief, the Dow is actually having its best weekly gain in two months right now, and it's already erased its September losses. The S&P and NASDAQ are having their best week in three months, and it's a broad-based rally that my next guests say will continue no matter the relief package or the election outcome. Joining me now are Nancy Tangler, the Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments, and Robert Teeter is head of the Investment Policy and Strategy Group at Silvercrest Asset Management. It's good to have you both here. And Nancy, I'm going to throw you the same question. You know, president comes through with a $1.8 trillion stimulus offer, as it sounds, and market sells off the highs. What do you make of it? Yeah, thanks, Kelly, for having me. I, I think that um, many investors like us are looking past the election. It's not, it's not clear, uh, though, we should get something to help uh, individuals who are suffering through this. It's not clear that that's going to happen. And so many of us are looking past the election. We're, we're focused on three secular themes, which is manufacturing in the U.S. is on the rise, don't fade tech, and uh, global synchronized growth is making a cameo appearance. And so we're positioning our portfolios for that. And the liquidity in the market, I think, could be attributed to, to the, the rises that we see on a daily basis after the nice correction we got last month. All right. Well, GSG, we haven't heard a lot about global synchronized growth lately, so we're bringing it back. <laughs> I like it. Robert, let me turn to you, ask first about today and then kind of we'll broaden out from there. But, you know, why wouldn't you expect? I mean, if I just saw that headline on paper, you know, the president says, go ahead on one point eight trillion dollars, you know, of a relief bill. I'd expect we are up 500 points. What do you think? Right. Well, the stimulus talks have been on again, off again for quite some time. So I think investors are a little bit apprehensive about buying into it too much. But I agree that as we look forward into next year, uh, there are a lot of positive tailwinds here, and those are going to continue stimulus or not. So the tailwinds that you see, are they the same ones that Nancy sees, Robert? And in other words, are you saying to people, you know, it doesn't matter what happens with this relief bill, it doesn't matter what the outcome of the election is? Well, one of the things that we've seen, and it's pretty common to notice this, that in an election year, uh, the news is typically very negative. Uh, as you get particularly into a presidential election cycle, uh, a lot of negativity. You can track this through a monitor that the San Francisco Fed puts together. And what we've seen is that after the election, that cloud of negativity tends to dissipate, and the focus turns more from political sound bites onto the fundamentals. And we see an improving fundamental picture. Uh, we think with interest rates as low as they are, uh, valuations have some room to go higher, particularly once we get through the election. 
All right, Nancy, I want to ask you, we'll be speaking about energy in the next segment and whether this 10% rally that we've seen over the last few days is for real or not. I guess the same question could be asked of some of the industrial plays that you like. Why do you think they're going to have legs here? Well, because I do think that um, no matter who gets in the White House, and, and we can debate whether it's a sweep or not, um, I prefer divided government. But even if we get a sweep, I think we're going to see infrastructure. We know that uh, companies are moving manufacturing jobs back to the U.S., and uh, the, the multiplier effect of those jobs is, is compelling and powerful. Uh, and, and we also know that... Um, that these companies are beneficiaries of CapEx spending that has been improving uh, since the Obama administration, and we expect to see continue. So we like the cyclicals in the near term. We like tech for the next three to five years because we think the multiplier effects there uh, are, are compelling uh, as, as work uh, situations yeah. change and, and all behaviors. And I should note the Nasdaq is well outperforming today, up about 1.2% to the Dow's half a percent gain. Nancy, on that point, uh, what, are you kind of excited at the prospect of this AMD Xilinx tie-up and what implications would it have? Yeah, I, um, I'm sorry I didn't buy Xilinx. I had it on my watch list and I, and I missed it. <laughs> um, and that's the nature of this business. We're in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction always. But I think the M&A activity <laughs> um, is, is important to some of the companies that, that really have you don't have the kind of growth potential on their own uh, and can be much more powerful together. So, um, you know, the lower interest rate comment is absolutely correct. And also the fact that these companies are growing the top line exponentially in many cases. And so they have the cash and the wherewithal to acquire and add on to their business model. So I think this is a great deal for AMD. I wish I'd been on the other side of it, but I'm, I'm not. I love that. The perpetually dissatisfied. <laughs> Robert, I'll turn to you. You don't have to comment on that. But, uh, you know, with the three sectors that you call out, consumer discretionary, industrials and materials. So you're really betting on the recovery trade. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. One of the things that we've seen with COVID is it's created a massive cycle in the economy. Uh, some of the areas that aren't typically cyclical have seen a lot of cyclicality. And the time to buy them is when the earnings are depressed. And that's now. And we think as you look out into next year with the uh, economic tailwinds behind you, earnings improving and reasonable valuation. Uh, there are a lot of gains to be had there. All right. Good stuff, guys, today. Thank you both, Robert Teeter and Nancy. T Teeter and Tangler. It sounds like a law firm or a grocery store or something. Uh, thank you both Tag very, team. very much for your time today. We appreciate it. <laughs> Dow's up 165. Coming up, a blockbuster move from Disney that reveals what's working and what isn't in the new post-COVID media landscape. We'll have the details on that. Plus, as I mentioned, Halliburton, Occidental, Marathon Petroleum up about 10% this week as oil jumps. Is this a real crude comeback or a short-term bump? We're going to ask right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil prices are down a bit today, but tracking pretty higher lately. Both crude and Brent are up more than 10% in the past week. And billionaire investor Carl Icahn is one person seeing better things ahead in the energy sector, saying last night, quote, if you look back in three years, I think you'll say, geez, I could have bought those energy stocks. I think that's when you buy something, when nobody wants it, Icahn said. Joining me now to discuss whether the move in oil prices lately is sustainable, Dan Pickering is chief investment officer at Pickering Energy Partners. Dan, it's great to have you here. So what would you say explains, first of all, just the move that we've seen over the last couple of sessions? Sure, Kelly. Good to be here. I think if you look back, September was a terrible month It was for the market, but energy was even worse. So we've got a nice little recovery coming off a pretty terrible September. Moving crude from the, the high 30s to the low 40s also helps. And then you've got this thematic trade that's going on around cyclicals and, and low, low interest rates forever. So I think you put all those three things together and energy's having a nice October so far. We were talking, Dan, about why energy was sitting out of the rebound uh, trade for a while. It just seemed like, well, it has its own problems. It has supply issues and you name it. If you're somebody watching this who thinks, you know, I'm going to bet on a, a, the recovery, I'm going to bet on the rotation, should you pick up these energy names or not? I think the answer is yes, if you've got a reasonable time frame. I mean, trading-wise, they've been all over the place. Crude's not going to make a massive move to the upside anytime soon. Feels like it's a bit trapped in this sort of high 30s, low 40s area. But, I mean, the reality is that, that energy stocks could double and still only be flat for the year. They've been so tough mm. that um, there's real value there. So the answer is yes, if you can take this volatility and have got a reasonable time period. Yeah, Exxon, which I think is one of the names you would recommend, is down 50% this year. It has a 10% dividend yield. I think Chevron's up around 7%. Are those dividends safe or are they simply just not that attractive because investors are so concerned about the capital losses? I think people are worried about the energy transition. They're worried about oil prices. And, you know, energy has not been a good place to be, so you, you just sell the biggest names. Um, I don't know if Exxon's dividend is safe, but if they cut it in half, I bet the stock goes up, right? The market would like to see sustainable hmm. numbers from these companies. And so, um, you know, my guess is Exxon's going to protect the dividend. Uh, that's going to, to pay you while you wait. It actually makes the stock, you know, they're going to borrow to pay that dividend. It makes it one of the juiciest sort of highest leverage names to, to prices recovering because if price gets better, you know, that dividend gets safer. So um, I think they're reasonably safe. And even if they cut them, I think the stocks are still interesting. Well, what you say reminds me of what Dan Loeb said about Disney this week, where he'd prefer them not to pay the dividend. I mean, I know that Exxon doesn't like the optics of doing away with the dividend, and they have a lot of investors that's very, very important to. But are you saying you think they'd be better off without it? Uh, not that they'd be better off without it, but I think it's an overhang on the stock right now. So, um, you know, in the short term, if you took that overhang away, you probably get a lift. It hurts the dividend in the near term, obviously, and, and the income. But you've got a more sustainable dividend on a go-forward basis. So I'm not advocating that they do. I'm just saying if they did, uh, I think you, you, you might wind up with this kind of surprise move to the upside in stock. And I'm just curious, Dan, before we go, we have Carl Icahn, and I believe Sam Zell in the last year or so was another person. And, and of course, he is famous for looking at distressed assets and said he was looking at the energy patch. What does that all say to you? 
Well, it tells me we're six years into a downturn. There's good value there. I think those investors are making a play that, that isn't necessarily the next quarter or year. And it says when you're buying three or four times cash flow on depressed cash flows, um, that your opportunity to make money is, is pretty good. So you've got to be patient, but they're value players and there's value in the sector. I think that's what that's telling you. All right. Dan, thanks for joining me today. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. You bet. Dan Pickering. Coming up, Microsoft takes a bold stance on working from home. Will it backfire? We'll explore that. Plus, as work began drying up during the pandemic, some Americans decided to take matters into their own hands and start a business. It turns out startups are surging this year. That story is next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange, and let's get a check on markets right now. Dow's up 139 points. It's been a fascinating couple of hours. The president has seemed to agree uh, to support some kind of $1.8 trillion stimulus plan, and yet the market is off the highs after those comments. There's a lot of different reports out there about whether he has enough support, especially on the Republican side in the Senate, even in Congress, to move forward on a compromise plan with Speaker Pelosi. We're going to hear uh, potentially from Pelosi and Mnuchin after they hold talks this afternoon. Uh, but all of that gets you a Dow up 139 or half a percent this hour. And it's the laggard. The S&P is up eight tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq is up 1.2 percent. And let's take a look at the sectors where discretionary technology and consumer staples are your leaders. Makes sense, again, given the Nasdaq outperformance. And then energy utilities and real estate are your laggards right now, even though energy is coming off a really strong couple of sessions. Some of the individual movers include shares of Zoom, which are higher after a buy initiation at Mizuho today. They're calling Zoom best of breed when it comes to video conferencing, and they expect outsized revenue growth to continue. Zoom's up about 3% to 4.93. The stock is up more than 600% this year. Meanwhile, shares of GE are getting a nice lift today after Goldman reinstated the stock with a buy. They pointed to management progress in creating a leaner and more productive company. The shares are still under seven bucks or up three and a half percent today. And DraftKings falling on news that the New York Jets team was sent home after a presumptive COVID-19 positive test. Shares on track for their worst week since March. DraftKings down about four percent right now. Now, since the pandemic started, weekly jobless claims have been above 800,000 every single week. That's left more than 25 million workers on some form of unemployment. And while Congress debates more relief, anxiety over additional job losses is rising, especially for airline workers. Seema Modi brings us the story of one woman living this reality right now. Seema? 
Kelly, the back and forth in Washington is fueling anxiety among Americans who have either lost their job or been furloughed. Meet Connie Mattia, who recently celebrated her 20th anniversary as a flight attendant for United Air. She opted for a company-offered leave of absence from May to July, then started to fly in late summer, only to be told on October 1st she was being furloughed. It creates a bit difficult time for me. I don't feel like I can go out and find another job at this time because I don't want to do that to another employer. Have them hire me, put in time and money and effort, and then for me to turn around a month and say, oh, I'm going back to my airline, goodbye. That's not fair to them. Connie shared with us that she's already gutted her 401k. She's hoping she does not have to dip into her pension, which will make it difficult for her to retire. It underscores the financial pain many families across the nation are facing with over 25 million remaining unemployed. First-time claims totaled 840,000 last week, which was higher than expected. And these stimulus talks have certainly coincided with a wave of layoffs. Void Gaming, Chevron among the companies over the past one week that have had to make the painful decision to shed jobs. Kelly. Seema, it does seem as though we've gotten a, a lot of layoff announcements from corporate America lately. I mean, are, are people tying that to the, to the relief bill or kind of the lack thereof? Or is it just that we're kind of getting long enough into this pandemic now that companies are, are right-sizing for what that workforce will now look like? Yeah, a number of the companies and even the Americans that we've spoken to over the past couple of days, families that unfortunately are dealing with this unemployment situation do tie it back to this, this government aid running out. And that's why so many people are on edge watching this stimulus talk to see how things pan out between the Democrats and Republicans and how large this relief package will really uh, be to ensure that they are also included in that. And I think it's also the sense of anxiety, Kelly, that so many people who are furloughed are facing. It really is in contrast to a musician from Broadway that I spoke to this morning that said, all right, now I know that we're not going back to business till June of next year, but at least I can spend the next nine to 10 months looking at my skill set, seeing how I can reapply it to perhaps another job versus being furloughed, not sure if you're going to go back to being full-time with your company. It is um, a precarious situation to be in. Yeah, now we're going to talk more about people who are in that position right now. Seema, thank you. Despite or perhaps because of this year's mounting job losses, some brave folks have decided to take matters into their own hands and launch their own business. The number of new business applications for likely employers is at its highest level in more than a decade as of mid-September and way above what we saw after the last recession. So what's behind this startup surge? Joining me now is John Haltewanger. He's an economics professor at the University of Maryland and the former chief economist for the U.S. Census Bureau. It's great to have you here. And there's a lot of skepticism about these numbers with people going, it must be any possible explanation except people really launching new businesses. What would you say? I'd say a couple of things. These, this uh, new applications data is really high quality data from the Census Bureau. Uh, if you're going to be an employer business, uh, one, a necessary condition for being a new business is you've got to apply for an EIN. And so uh, this is actually literally the universe of applications uh, for, for new EINs that we're tracking on a very high frequency basis. And, and it's also the case, it's, it's called SS4 is the form. It's, it's an online form. Uh, so it's basically automated. So there's, there's sort of no uh, association with this being a backlogs or anything like that. Um, and, and also there's various checkboxes on the form uh, that, that provide information about, about why you're applying for a new EIN. And we are seeing, as you noted, uh, actually a surprising, I'll go ahead and say a surprising surge 
in uh, new sure. in applications for new employer businesses. I have some thoughts about why that's the case, but you're also right to note that in the Great Recession, the same series plummeted. Yeah, so I also want people to know that there's a broader series that would include uh, freelance workers, independent contractors, gig workers. That's running up 18% higher than a year ago, and we've actually stripped that out. So this is really just focusing on startups among likely employers. People are going to hire, and as, as everybody knows, this is the engine of job creation. And this engine totally stalled after the last recession for years, actually. So if you think that this is a real phenomenon, what, what's driving it? Well, I actually think the COVID-19 contraction is going to be more of a restructuring uh, contraction. That doesn't mean it's it, it's a good thing we're having this contraction. Indeed, it's terrible. You had just had a great story about about the difficulties that individuals are uh, facing layoff. But but I but I think we we recognize that the new economy and the new normal, as though I know what that is, is is likely to look different. And and I I think COVID-19 is accelerating trends that were already going on. And so. So again, if we if we want to ask ourselves who, who are these new businesses, I, I think uh, we, unfortunately census does not yet release the, the data um, uh, by industry. But I think once they do, I think we'll be we'll, we'll begin seeing uh, that the U.S. economy is pivoting, uh, not surprisingly to to I'll say any kinds of goods or service activity uh, that that um, that a new business can promote. Uh, remote activity and online activity. And and uh, yeah. essentially what's happening right now is uh, there are obviously lots of existing businesses that are working very hard to pivot themselves, but not all of them are, are well positioned to do so. And, and, and that, that actually opens up market opportunities for potential new businesses. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like you said, a restructuring here, there's something very different going on uh, from the, after the last recession. And, and we hope uh, more promising. John Holtewanger, thanks so much for your time today. Sure. Nice to be here. Let's get to Wilfred Frost now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Wilf. Hi, Kelly. Uh, I'm Wilfred Frost. Here's your CNBC update at this hour. As Election Day approaches, Twitter is taking steps to slow the spread of misinformation, including a prompt encouraging users to add their own commentary before retweeting a post. The company says it hopes the extra friction, as it describes the additional step, will help people think about why they're amplifying any particular messages. In 2016, as his campaign was running short of money, Donald Trump got a $21 million cash infusion from transactions involving a Las Vegas hotel he co-owns. That's according to the New York Times, citing Trump, ta Trump tax records it's obtained. The paper quotes uh, experts saying the maneuvers raised legal questions. The White House accuses the Times of politically motivated hit pieces about what it calls a standard business deal. And the chairman of the board, New York Yankees pitcher Whitey Ford, has died at the age of 91. He won almost seven of every 10 games he pitched, the best winning percentage for any pitcher in the 20th century, helping the Yankees dominate baseball in the 1950s and 60s. Kelly, back to you. All right, Wilfred, thank you very much, Sir Wilfred Frost. Coming up here, Disney throws a curveball, Apple extends TV Plus for free, Napa Valley is on the brink, and would you take a cruise to nowhere? It's all coming up after this quick break. Stay with us here on The Exchange.
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire on this Friday. Here to break down all the headlines are John Fort, Julia Borston, and Dom Chu. It's great to see everybody. And let's start with Disney. Delaying yet another big-budget film, the premiere of Pixar's animated movie Soul has been pushed back nearly a month for Christmas Day. But it won't debut in theaters. Soul will premiere on Disney Plus and at no charge to all subscribers. Now, the movie theater stocks, as you might imagine, don't like this news. Slipping lower, although not terribly, but these are cheap stocks. AMC and Cinemark, Disney's uh, in the green today. Um, Julia, I mean, what's also interesting about this is the fact that they're not going to charge that 30 bucks they did for Mulan. It seems to reinforce the notion that that was kind of a flop. Well, I think Mulan was also very unique in that it was so big budget and also that Disney had spent months and months. Remember, Mulan had been delayed several times, months and months doing these theatrical marketing campaigns, which meant they were spending perhaps even $100 million on marketing Mulan. So there was a different sense of the scale of Mulan and how much they needed to get back from Mulan. I think this is also different because this is really targeting kids. And it's a perfect example of what Disney Plus does. It's also a great way to market Disney Plus as a Christmas gift. It's a Christmas Day thing. They're going to make people who already subscribe to Disney Plus feel like it's worthwhile, and they're going to use this to try to get more people to sign up for Disney Plus. I mean, John Ford, I would imagine that, you know, marginal subscribers to Disney Plus are far more valuable for Disney shares than either trying to charge that extra uh, dollar for people to watch the movie. I don't know. Maybe even to some extent replacing the traditional box office economics. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But if this were Toy Story 4, would they really do this? I, I think either either Soul is so-so or Disney Plus churn is bad or, you know, Mulan didn't didn't do that great. And and I, I but, tend to lead toward maybe Mulan didn't do that. Great. I mean, I saw it, but I saw it at somebody else's house. Julia, and, and I kind of thought, oh, well, it was fine. I'm not going to go back and watch it again. But, uh, maybe, maybe they kind of tried it, and they know that Christmas time, it's going to be nicer to give a gift than demand one. But also just remember, John, that putting it in theaters just does not seem to be an option. Regal theaters are going to be totally shut down. There's oh, yeah, no sure. sense of when movie, the movie theaters are really going to be open again. So this but, was supposed to debut in November in theaters, which obviously now. But like, not why not charge me five bucks? Like, give it, I'm, I'm happy to take it mm -hmm. for free, but if you can make the money, why not? Unless your churn is a problem and you feel like, boy, after charging them for Mulan, we really want them to stay or sign up. So let's give them this. Dom, we'll give you the last word on this. To me, this is Econ 101. This is the company, Disney, trying to figure out if there's an equilibrium point for what you can charge. Now, I am a Disney Plus subscriber. I was not going to pay the, I think it was like 30 bucks, right, to, 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 to have Mulan streamed into my Disney Plus subscription. I'm happy to wait three or four months for it to be free with my subscription. But there, to John's point, there's going to be a price here where you can set it and you can actually maximize the amount of revenue. This is all about yield management at this point. Disney is trying to figure out what they can charge for these types of movies. It may not be 30, but it's certainly not free. Somewhere in the middle is going to be there. They just got to figure out what that price point is, Kel. Yeah, and, and, Dis and Kelly, my Disney's last figuring thing it out, is it and so, yeah. Yeah, Kelly, I just have to say, remember, everyone knows what Mulan is. Everyone remembers the animated movie. No one knows what Soul is. So you also have to think about what are the brands that people are familiar with that they might feel a fondness for and be willing to pay for. 
Fair enough. I didn't know about it till I had to read about it in the paper with this story. And so just as Disney's trying to figure out its economics, so is Apple. So speaking of streaming, Apple is going to extend free trials of Apple TV Plus for another three months. So if your trial was going to expire before February, you now get three additional months at no cost. And it comes at a moment when Apple TV actually maybe seems to have hit its stride, adding hits like Ted Lasso and Tehran. Rich Greenfield tweeting the other day that he thinks Apple has meaningfully outperformed Disney Plus in year one in terms of original programming. John, is this an, an out-of-consensus take, or are people warming up to Apple Plus, which I think started out with a little bit of a whimper? Well, I think the, the key phrase there is in terms of original programming. Now, I have watched stuff on Apple TV Plus, but I can't say I watch anything on Apple TV Plus, whereas Disney Plus, there's stuff the kids like, like we're, we're kind of in there all the time. Part of it's The Simpsons. They're watching stuff from back in the, in the 80s and 90s when, when, when I was a teenager. <laughs> but I, I think this perhaps speaks to Apple might not have enough new content, particularly in this pandemic, to keep people from churning. So they figure, well, why not push this out three months, uh, get our new slate ready, and then maybe we, right. we'll be okay letting this thing uh, roll off. Dom, we do know they have a bunch of new things coming uh, that, that people seem excited about. And obviously, extending a free trial for three months is, is not a sign of strength. But again, if it's kind of going to work for the long run, then who cares, right? Yeah, and this, is, this comes, again, back to the price point issue. The, the two properties, I think, in our household, just anecdotally, that have the most traction with regard to original content are Netflix and to a, to a certain degree, Amazon Prime. We do watch a lot more Amazon Prime and Netflix because of those original series as opposed to the libraries of hits that they have. If the American public or the world public writ large is looking for that original programming, then Apple is going to make some investments down the line. You've got to figure to ramp up that kind of programming because for Apple, I know that my wife watched The Morning Show and I watched a little bit of C and that's pretty much all it's been since I've had Apple TV Plus. Mm -hmm. So they've got to get more in terms of content and then maybe they can justify the cost. Julia, what would you say? I think that they're very strategic here in terms of extending the window a little bit longer until perhaps they're selling bundles of services. Because remember, it might be a lot easier to get people to pay for Apple TV Plus if they're paying for other things at a discount at the same time. And when they launched Apple TV Plus, the bundle was not even part of the conversation. So I think that they're also delaying to see if maybe they have a little bit more of a library built up of their own originals. So as John mentioned, it's not like when they launched, but now they're saying, OK, it's really worth staying around for this content and three months from now yeah. they'll have a ton more content than they do now so i think it's it's it seems Great very point. smart from where i'm sitting and as you were saying that i'm trying to remember what was the name of that apple bundle apple one i think is the bundle they got the workout stuff and the music and the tv so it makes sense maybe it's part of that whole suite of offerings all right this story i definitely want to hear everyone's uh, perspective on microsoft is going remote for good uh, first reported by The Verge, the tech giant will now allow employees to work from home for less than half of their week from now on. They can also gain permanent approval to work remotely, and you can work from anywhere. But compensation and benefits will vary depending on Microsoft's own GeoPay scale. A recent poll from Workplace Chat App Blind found that nearly half, 44% of employees, guys, would take a pay cut to live somewhere less expensive. John, I actually have a friend at Microsoft who's had um, new team members from New Jersey who are literally working in their parents' basement. And you wonder what that's going to do for that workplace culture going forward. Now, maybe that employee ultimately is able to go to Seattle as soon as they can. Um, 
and they go in and maybe the parents all stay home. What do you make of it? I have the opposite take from a lot of the headlines I've been seeing on this. You cannot work at home forever. Less than half the week means two days a week <laughs> or one, right? That's, that's pretty much the only way you can slice less than half a week. Also, I think don't think you can work from Kalamazoo and have the same career trajectory that you would have working in a tech company's headquarters. I mean, sure, maybe you get on board, but are you going to advance through the ranks at the same rate? Plus, you know, if you're living in Denver, for example, at VMware, you're making 18 percent less. Does that mean you can make 22 percent more if you just move to the Bay Area? Uh, because if so, there are going to be a bunch of people living in an apartment with their coworkers while their families live in Denver. Hmm. That's how they're going to game it. Dom, what do you think? Because I, I, I know why people would say, listen, I might take less to live somewhere else, but it's still going to be a better job in that town than I would have had access to, you know, otherwise. I feel as though this is a great exercise in scalability for the workforce at, at a company like Microsoft. They've got um, just gazillions of employees spread out all over the place. What you're looking to do is kind of find this, this I guess, equilibrium or diffusion type scenario where people actually want to settle where they want to be. It also, to John's point, it means that not everybody feels like they want to have that career trajectory. Some people are okay just kind of working their nine to five job, going home, collecting their paycheck and doing things outside of their in their own lives. You don't have to put everybody on the same track for that same kind of promotion or that same kind of pay. And I would say this also, if you're looking to game some of those situations, how long can you actually say, I'm going to work in a different time zone from my family, telecommute or commute, and make it work economically. At some point, you're going to want to say, I need to set down roots somewhere. I'd rather do it here. Work is not my life, and that's, that's kind of what it's going to be. All right. We have to well, move Kelly, along so I, I think can the real question final does... story. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say the real question is when are they going to force people to make this decision? I can't decide anything right now because my kids are still at school at home. And so you have no sense of when maybe you would want to spend a couple days a week at the office. So I think it'll be really interesting to see if they let people go back and forth and say, yes, I'll opt to take one or two days at home this week and maybe not um, six months from now. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right. We talked about the flights to nowhere the other day, but now we've got cruises to nowhere and Royal Caribbean and Asia-Pacific-based Genting uh, will operate cruises that simply circle Singapore. But it's acting, this is actually kind of a, a test run for cruising. So they're going to test hygiene protocols uh, so that ships depart and return from the same stop. They run at 50% capacity. Speaking of the cruise industry, Vice President Pence is holding a call with cruise executives at 2 p.m. today. So, Dom, this isn't just kind of a flight of fancy, so to speak. It's, it's helping them gear up for what could be the post-pandemic cruise industry and maybe get people more comfortable with it. And apparently, plenty of people want to sign up for this. Yes, and plenty of people do. What I find curious is whether or not the price point is premium because some of the reports we've been seeing say that these are going to be thousands of dollars in terms of going to do it. If this was a true dry run, if this was a true way of getting this cruise industry to kind of get people more comfortable with the idea of going on these cruises again, what you might want to do is, hey, hey, guys, we're going to give you a discount fare. We're not going to go anywhere, but you'll get to see what it's like. You'll get to go with the protocols. You'll still get kind of all of the food and beverage options that you had, obviously, in a very different capacity. There's not going to be no more all-you-can-eat buffets there for a while. But that's the kind of thing that you're looking to do. If you're looking to get away and do this, I'm curious what the price point is. I don't really feel as though they can get away with that ultra-premium price point just to go around in circles around Singapore. 
I thought you might be open to it. Uh, we have to leave it there, everybody. Uh, but appreciate it again today. John Fort, Julia Borson, and Dom Chu for this edition of Rapid Fire. Take a quick break. Still ahead, take a look at this mystery chart. The stock has climbed more than 130% so far this year. And Mr. Kramer, Jim Kramer, says it's still a buy. We're going to reveal it and where else Jim sees opportunity next. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Our own Jim Cramer laying out seven sectors of opportunity in the market right now. And used auto stocks are among those groups, especially as people remain wary of public transit or air travel due to the pandemic. Take a look at Group 1 Automotive, Lithia Motors, CarMax, AutoNation. Group 1 and AutoNation are hitting fresh all-time highs today. The whole group has seen a meteoric rise from their March lows up at least 150 percent, in Lithia's case up 400 percent. And then there's Carvana up 850 percent from the lows. And the company is benefiting from its online-focused approach as dealerships have been shuttered by the coronavirus. Now, last quarter, it reported a 16 percent rise in net-use vehicle sales and went on to project record-breaking revenue for the current quarter. And for those keeping score at home, Carvana's market cap was below $5 billion at the start of the year. Now it's bigger than automakers Fiat and Ford. It's worth more than $35 billion. Still ahead here on the exchange, wildfires ravaging California's wine country. Here's a live shot of the Charles Crew, the oldest winery in Napa Valley, where parent company Mondavi has allowed PG&E to set up field operations to deal with these fires. We're going to speak with the CEO of Mondavi about that and the future of California. California wine right after this. Welcome back. California wildfires have taken a big toll on Napa Valley, making it, in fact, the most devastating season for California wine country ever. Aditi Roy has a closer look now for us. Aditi? Yeah, Kelly, nearly every winemaker in Napa and Sonoma is facing unparalleled challenges between the pandemic and the wildfires. The recent glass fire alone destroyed more than 1,500 structures and damaged 280. Winemakers now face three big challenges. First, assessing the damage. Dozens of wineries were damaged by the fires. In fact, I just talked to one winemaker yesterday who says they're still trying to dig out and figure out what needs to be rebuilt. Two, deciding whether or not to harvest. A big question, even those wineries which were not impacted directly by flames face smoky air sitting on their grapes for weeks. Many wineries are deciding to skip the harvest. Those in that category face the challenge of keeping enough inventory to satisfy their customers. Fortunately, there has been an oversupply of grapes in recent years, so a smaller vintage could help rebalance things. Joining me now is from Charles Krug Winery in St. Helena is the CEO of C. Mandavi family, Judd Wallenberg. Judd, thank you so much for being there. We see the PG&E trucks behind you at the winery. They're using the vineyard as a base camp. After you reached out to them, what was the reason behind that decision? Well, the decision was pretty simple for us. We, uh, you know, when the fires broke out, our first step was to make sure that all of our staff and family were uh, safe. Once we determined that, the next step was really to find out how we could help the community. It's a very tight-knit community here in the Valley. And uh, we fortunately have a really good connection with uh, PG&E. We knew that the CAL FIRE was taking care of the fires. How could we help the community get their power back? And we reached out to uh, PG&E, and immediately we, we, they set up base camp here. 
Yeah, you, you mentioned that Charles Krug was intact after the fire, but with so much smoke taint in the area, how are all the Mandavi winers approaching that important decision of whether or not to harvest and whether or not to make wine from those grapes? Right, so actually a little clarification, this is the C. Mandavi family, it's the original Mandavi family, and the only estate that we have, the only winery we have here is Charles Krug, the oldest winery here in Napa Valley, and it's still owned by uh, the Mandavi family uh, in our fourth generation here. Uh, the decision, we have a very large footprint in Napa Valley, about 850 acres stretching from down in the south up to uh, uh, Howell Mountain. And fortunately, most of these fires were in the northern part of the valley, and so much of our fruit is in Yontville and sort of the central part of the, of the, uh, of the valley. And so our decision is very simple. We are picking all of our fruit, and we will make wine out of it, and we'll determine at that point in time whether or not that wine will be fit enough to sell or to, or to bottle. Uh, and, but not until we make the wine out of it. Of course, we won't bottle anything that won't be fit for, for consumption, but we're actually quite confident that we'll make a pretty good wine. 2017 is a good example where there's a ring of fire all through the valley and smoke much heavier than this, and we still made fantastic wines out of that vintage. Mr. Wallenbrook, it's Kelly here. My question is, if these wildfires do become chronic, will the wine industry still have a future in California? Oh, absolutely. I will tell you that the wine industry is about the most resilient industry I've ever been around. If you take a look at where we've been, we've been through clearly now a pandemic. We've been through multiple years of fires, earthquakes, uh, world wars, recessions, economic depressions. And most importantly, you know, uh, remember back 1919 through 33, we went through prohibition where it was actually illegal so, to have alcohol. So we know we're going to survive and thrive. Uh, and this is going to be yet another uh, uh, sort of a little bit of a setback, but we will definitely s survive and thrive. We're passionate people about wine. Uh, it'll, it'll continue. And Jed, talking about the long-term effect, you said long-term there's resilience, but what are your thoughts about the 2020 vintage uh, for overall for Napa and Sonoma? How will it look like volume-wise and how will it taste? Yeah, so it's going to be a very um, different pockets. So there's different areas of the valley. Sonoma is very well known for Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is a uh, thin-skinned grape. I think they're probably going to have a little bit more of an impact. Cabernet is a very thick-skinned grape, and that's really the, the core grape of uh, Napa Valley. And remember that all of our whites were already in, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnays, things like that. So we're going to be fine with our whites. The question is going to be with the reds. And Cabernet is incredibly resilient and thick-skinned. So I think we're probably going to be in pretty good shape, depending on where in the valley or where you are in Sonoma Valley, uh, uh, are these pockets that are going to have either really greatness or there's going to be real problems. Cabernet grapes, uh, so iconic in that region. Some wineries are looking at growing research blocks. Some have been doing so and trying to figure out a way to grow hardier grapes that withstand higher temperatures. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what's being done at Mondavi Properties? Yeah, in our particular case, where we're looking at our different regions in Napa Valley. So Napa is, Napa Valley is only about 30 miles long question. and about five miles wide, but it's very, very cool in the south. But if that's warming up, then maybe that becomes more of a Cabernet area down there. Uh, this is a generational type of thing. I should point out that we are a family-owned operation in our fourth generation with the fifth on the way, by the way. So we're here for generations, and we will continue to do any kind of research we need to do to evolve ourselves. Uh, but at this point in time, yeah, we're very much dedicated to the Cabernet grape, and we think it's going to continue to, th to thrive here in Napa Valley. Jed Hollenbrock, thank you so much. Joining us from Seaman Davi and family. Thank you so much. Kelly, back to you.
And Aditi, we appreciate it. That does it for the exchange today, but stick around for Power Lunch. There's a whole lot coming up next hour. We take a look at the rally in pot stocks. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.